Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi, this is episode 36 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast and I'm your host Ugo Jay. I have been wanting to interview Jay Patel for quite some time, but Jay is a rather busy person. What with having to manage photography business that is expanding in various directions, running a popular website, traveling and on top of it all being the father of a large family. I finally managed to corner him between trips to Iceland and Hawaii and of course wanted to know all about the land of fire and ice and his adventure chasing puffins and waterfalls. We also talked about what it takes to photograph the wilderness, and I managed to extract from him some elements of his secret recipe for making a living out of photography in nature. Another topic that is close to my heart and to Jay's is that of conservation, and we couldn't help but dedicate some time to exploring ways in which photographers can help saving our planet. So if you're interested in all these topics, I suggest that you listen to my conversation with Jay Patel. You will be able to find all the links about all the things we mentioned in this interview on our website at ttim.photo forward slash 36. And now let's jump right into my interview with Jay Patel. So a very nice uh, afternoon to Jay Patel, who is my guest today. Hi, Jay. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for inviting me over here uh, on your podcast, Hugo. Uh, you're very welcome. It's uh, it's a great pleasure for me to have you here. We've been uh, friends online for uh, for many years, and we've uh, talked many times. But it's the first time I'm I'm interviewing you, and I'm um, I'm really I was really looking forward to to this conversation we are having today. Uh, one of the reasons I I was looking forward to this is that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you just returned from a trip to Iceland, which have been uh, has been on my on my radar for a long time. So maybe I will go one day, and I wanted you to to talk a bit about Iceland. So, uh, yeah, first of all, just uh, how are things going? How are things in the world of Jay Patel? Well, things are going very well. We've been very busy, um, as you know. We do photography full time. And this is my only business, so for us, um, we need to make sure that we are on top of everything, uh, there are business contacts to make, and interviews to give like yourself, and then we have to create video courses, marketing campaign, um, plus make sure that we have collaborative approach to visual wilderness, so we have to make sure that visual wilderness is uh, putting out new blog posts, uh, we're talking to our contributing authors and photographers who are some of the best around in the world. Mm. So it keeps you busy. Yeah, yeah. We will talk about visual wilderness uh, a little bit later, but um, I wanted just to, to concentrate a bit on yeah, uh, Iceland, as we said. So, You've just returned. So can you tell us wh- why you went there? What was the the reason so for Iceland you going is, there? And it's not. It was not your first time there, right? No, it isn't. And Iceland has... Um, been on every landscape photographer's radars for quite some time. Um, it appeared that when we first went into Iceland in 2011, it wasn't quite as popular. Not many people went there. 
And after that, in like last five years or so, every photographer goes to Iceland uh, because it's just absolutely breathtaking uh, place. And uh, there's so many things to shoot, especially in the summertime. Mm -hmm. And the unique thing about Iceland is because it's so far north, um, just like Norway and uh, some other northern countries, the sun actually never really sets. Well, it sets. Uh, during summer solstice, but um, the light, it never really gets that dark. Mm -hmm. So if you get a really good skies, the golden hours last for hours. So when we were there, the sun would go down around midnight, and then it would rise around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And if you go to northern Iceland, that time is even shorter. So we had a great time uh, photographing and exploring the place. And very little time sleeping, I guess. Well, you sleep. Your schedule changes. Uh, so you actually sleep during the day, um, especially the photographers like us. So when we are out at these gorgeous locations, there's almost nobody there. But if you go there in the morning to these places like Yagosarlan and uh, uh, Skogafoss, uh, there are like hundreds, thousands of tourists. Like there are tour buses parked over there. But when we go there... At night, there's hardly like two other photographers wandering around. You said that Iceland has become a very popular place with photographers recently. And in fact, I mean, we've all seen uh, tons of photos coming from Iceland, from the, the waterfalls and the, the cliffs, the, the iceberg lagoon and so on. Uh, can, can you still find something novel? And how you would you do you organize such a trip how do you plan to to find things that have not been shot to death a thousand times already, if you do? Well, it, it just depends on your perspective. For me, landscape photography is much about experience. So I can go to a location a thousand times, which I visited before, and not really get tired because experience, being on a location is different every time. Now, we've been out to Iceland about three times, and every time we saw something different. We saw changes. We saw different light, different weather conditions. So to me, it really doesn't matter whether things have been photographed a thousand times. If you're there at a location which is very popular and you get a unique light conditions, hey, it is uh, absolutely breathtaking. And if you don't, enjoy the experience of being there. There is nothing like being in a gorgeous place and having a lot of fun. So this trip was mostly, uh, I mean, for, you, you did it mostly for personal reasons because you wanted to experience those locations, as you said, or was it also for professional reasons, like getting images for, uh, for sale? What, what well, was we, the main reason? We, um, it was a professional reason, no doubt about it. But landscape photography is unpredictable at the best. And if your attitude for landscape photography is that every time I go, all I am looking for is a great shot, there are times when you will be disappointed because the, the light doesn't show up or the weather is really bad. So if you go in with the attitude that it is for professional purposes, but if things don't work out, have fun. Mm -hmm. And you'll never come away disappointed. Yeah. How long was your trip? 18 days. 18 days. So that's we were running a workshop. I was helping uh, Colby run a workshop. Mm -hmm. And then after that, 
we were um, doing a project about um, some aerial photography and look for some puffin colonies way up north on a remote island. And in between all that, we were recording videos for our next upcoming course. Uh -huh. So you're now into aerial photography? Was that using drones? No. Oh. Um, proper, as much as I, uh, proper airplanes and helicopters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as much as I like drones and I think they produce some really cool shots and you can do a lot with them, the image sensors of uh, Sony A7R2 with a good lens from an airplane with open window can produce mm -hmm. images that uh, drones just don't have capabilities of capturing. Yeah. I heard that was uh, Hasselblad is partnering with DJI to, to release a medium format camera drone. So maybe we'll start to the, the gap will start closing soon. It isn't that you can't do photography with your Sony. I know photographers who actually use drone and a Sony Alpha cameras to photograph. But it's still the ability to adjust circular polarizer or ability to uh, change your settings once you're up in the air, um, to zoom in, zoom out, um, yeah. becomes really difficult. Plus, drone flights are very short in nature. We were out there for eight hours. Yeah, well, yeah. we know that, I mean, landscape photography takes time and patience and attention and uh, attention to detail and so on. Uh, so yeah, you can. I think you can get a, a lucky shot from a, from a drone flight, but that doesn't beat the kind of shots that you can take while uh, carefully planned and executed shots that you can do on on yeah. the ground, maybe. Well, not only that, but we can like when we were in the airplane, we saw rain on the horizon, so we flew into the rain, mm -hmm. take some really cool moody shots off the mountains and the glaciers. Uh, we saw rainbows, so we were able to direct the airplane to go to the rainbows. We were actually able to go and fly on the highlands on top of some of the highest mountains in Iceland or Land Manalagar. Now, in order for drone to go to all those places, you actually physically have to be close enough to those locations. Mm -hmm. And it was really windy. So drones have limited ability to to tolerate bad weather conditions. Oh, yeah, so there, there are a lot of limitations for drones still. I see. So you will, we will be shortly seeing some of the footage that you took in Iceland. Are you going to to publish it soon? What's that? Going to release a series of videos? Uh, we're going to release it with our next in focus deals in September, in um, thanks, around Thanksgiving time. Um, there'll be about fifteen or so videos filmed in Iceland, California, and Hawaii. And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, did you have a, a, a filming crew filming you? As I know you did that in the past. Or was we it have. Like, uh, DIY. Yeah, no, this one was, I actually acted as a director and the film crew for shooting Kobe. And then we reversed the role for um, Kobe was acting as a, um, as a director and filming me when we were doing videos. Uh, and the reason to do that is the trip was actually a mix of several different projects. We wanted to go to Grimsey Island to show to photograph the puffins fishing. 
and then we want to do aerial photography. So to take a film crew with us for 18 days becomes really cost prohibitive. And for, um, we didn't mention that you, you, you mentioned uh, Colby, and for the people who are following, we, we know Colby, uh, you're referring to Colby Brown, who is another yes. great landscape and travel photographer. I would love to have on him on the show one day, if you're in touch with him, just... <laughs> I hope he's listening and maybe he wants to, to come on one of the the next episodes I hope um, and you mentioned the puffins too uh, I was looking at your posts on Facebook uh, looks like you had a lot of fun trying to to photograph those b birds <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're uh, they're difficult to photograph um, you have to catch them at the right time and then um we photograph them and they're, um, depending on where you photograph them, they're either very scared of you or they're not really that scared of you. So uh, it just depends on the local environment and what they're used to. But we wanted to catch them um, fishing. Mm -hmm. So we had to go to at the right time and then we had to find, observe their behavior as how they're fishing, where they're bringing their fish back and uh, we ended up not only capturing some video footage of Puffins uh, sitting on a rock with a fish in his mouth, uh, beautiful 4K video footage with Sony cameras, with, uh, but we were also able to capture uh, um, lots of photographs of these birds coming back from the sea with like 5, 10, 20 fish in their mouths. Uh, beautiful coloration, very sharp details, and it was uh, a lot of fun because we actually had to do a sniper crawl almost to to peek over the grass or peek over the edge where uh, they were sitting around with fish. And you said it took a lot of time to to get those photos of the puffins, and in all in all, you, got, you stayed 18 days in Iceland. And um, so travel and landscape photography takes up a lot of time. And uh, I know we discussed that in the past. Um, you are a busy guy or you're a busy family. You have, what, six kids currently? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we, we, should, we said that um, you have to plan your trips very carefully because you don't have time. Beside the family, you have a, a business to run, a website, uh, educational material, courses to produce and so on. And articles to write. So it takes a lot of planning, a lot of preparation. And I think it, it also means being selective on where you, you can and want to travel. So I would like to know what, why Iceland in particular, especially after you've already been there and not to some other place where maybe you've not been to and, and you would like to go, but you cannot just because you don't have the time. Well, the reason we selected Iceland was because um, of diversity of terrain. So when you're creating a video course, the video course we were creating is titled um, Getting It Right in Camera. So we talk about five aspects of uh, photography that you need to learn to capture a great shot. Um, everything from selecting a location and light and selecting composition, how to focus, uh, how to expose, and then how to take a shot. So all these aspects of photography requires that you come away with, um, with a diverse set of photographs mm -hmm. in order to, to create educational materials so people know that 
while these five aspects of photography remain the same for every photo, but every time there is little variations in each one of those things. And for that, you need waterfalls, you need beaches, you need mountains, you need macro locations or locations with good macro opportunities. Um, so Iceland is one of those few places which provides that. There are other places in the world we would have selected. And, and I think for, for this reason, it also helps going to a place that you already know Correct. instead of going to a place you've never been to and you have to explore and might not fit your expectations and, uh, and so on. That, that, that might be a reason for, uh, for yeah, selecting always, a familiar place. It always helps to be you know, having selected a familiar place. But, but even if it is a known place, I mean, you have to be flexible enough in our business to, to make it work. Any other trips coming up? Yeah, I'm going to be in Hawaii in about uh, 10 days. Cool. From I island to island, just different yeah. climate. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, you are working on uh, mostly on education nowadays, if I understand correctly. So uh, you do video courses and ebooks and other material and so on. You, you seem to have focused on that. Uh, do you think there is still space on, uh, on the market for photographers who are more into, let's say, pure photography, quote-unquote, that want to go to a place like Iceland or Hawaii to get images and, uh, and sell them on the market? Or uh, do you think that uh, branching out in other fields like education is necessary for most people to, to make a living in photography? No, there is actually quite a, a photography itself, landscape photography in general. You can make a living a lot of different ways. We actually know people who uh, run full-time galleries uh, in several places, Colorado, Hawaii, um, Florida. We also know people who actually do just workshops and make their living entirely doing just workshops and have no educational material. And then we, have, we also know people who actually do art shows and make a lot of money doing art shows. Um, we also know photographers who, who, who sell uh, little trinkets in, uh, in gift shops, like, uh, for example, posters, magnets, and make several thousand dollars a month doing that. So you so, basically, yeah, go ahead, sorry. So it is possible to make a living in photography, so, but you need to, to be focused on whatever you decide you want to do to make a living. If you want to sell prints, uh, going to Iceland may not help you at all because ultimately if you look at the print market, print market is highly localized. So uh, having a gallery in Colorado, you can sell a lot of photos from Colorado. But if you come away with a photo from Antarctica and try to sell it in a in a gallery in Colorado, you may or may not have good luck with it. Yeah, sure. I mean, people who come to Colorado uh, might visit a gallery there and want to bring home something that reminds them of the places right. they've, they've seen with their own eyes and that they are not capable of capturing with the same level of uh, artfulness and, uh, and creating such great images. So they are naturally tempted to buy local displays art that displays local features 
instead of well coming to to Denver and buying a picture of a waterfall in Iceland. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you might be lucky to sell a few, but as you said, local uh, sells better. All right. Um, another thing I would like to ask you is: uh, uh, you are into wilderness, right? Nature, uh, pristine landscapes mostly. I hardly remember seeing a photograph of you've taken that includes people, <laughs> so, which is which is perfectly fine. I do love to include people in my compositions, but yeah, you're uh, you like wilderness, and uh, that that means traveling to unpopulated, uh, very sparsely inhabited places. Are there any specific challenges that? Uh, photographers need to take into account when visiting those locations are there any tips uh, that you would like to share for photographers who want to approach the wilderness for the first time yeah well there are lots of tips that we can give uh, the best way to do it is actually just look at our visual wilderness blog but uh, i'll give you a general overview of what you should look for when you're in visual and when you're in wilderness one of the the the, the tips kind of fall into three different categories. The first category is just having knowledge of the area. So if you're going at any location, you want to find out about the location itself, what is a good climate to go to, accessibility if you need any permits, road conditions, things like that. Where is a, place, a good place to stay? Um, so you sort of need to know and have some general knowledge of the area. That's, that's probably the first research you should do. The second thing you need to do is, especially if you're going for photography purposes, is to find out at the time, at the time you're going, what conditions do you expect from a photographic perspective? Are there wildflowers blooming? Are there fall colors? Is there a low tide, high tide? Whatever the case is. And then once you go, and the third tip that I'm going to give you is once you get to the location, even though you have done your research, you are expecting something to occur, nature doesn't always play by your rules. So when you get there, you may find that all your expectations are just dashed, or the light doesn't show up, or there's a flood in the area, or uh, there's a political rally, or something that has disrupted your plans that you did not foresee. And... Uh, We've run into that all the time. So the last tip I'm going to give you is in, st in spite of all the research and all the flex, all the, let me rephrase that. Besides doing all the research and besides knowing the area and besides planning your photography expedition, make sure you're flexible enough to change your plans. If you get to an area and you find that it doesn't quite suit your needs or there are unexpected conditions that uh, you did not predict. Mm -hmm. uh, we recently seen in the news um, a spate of uh, happenings, things happening in, in national parks and other wilderness areas like people uh, taking a bison calf into their car or walking into uh, hot springs <laughs> and so on. Uh, do, do you think there is a a worrying and dangerous trend that is happening nowadays? Or is it just that maybe a couple of things happen and then that weren't on the news, on the media radar before and now because there have been a 
couple of happenings like that close back to back, then the media are just digging up every possible bad things that happening and blowing it beyond proportions. I think the the thing about media these days is the news travels very fast, and in fact, it travels in in groups, even groups that are concentrated in. Um, following an event even faster. So, for example, if you're a landscape photographer, um, news of anything happening in national parks will catch your attention and you will be first ones to get it. Having said that, the, the things that people are doing nowadays by throwing the red dye in, in the geyser in Iceland or having a bison cough and back, they're just stupid. They're, they're not helping anybody. And as a landscape photographer, you want to see the, the nature preserved for generations to come. So we go to landscape. When we go to landscape photography, we actually make sure that we are not damaging the environment and sort of follow leave no trace principles as much as possible. Um, you'll never see us walking on the hot springs because that would be just dumb. I would rather not put any footprints on those hot prints and let the bacteria uh, create uh, those beautiful colors and patterns that I'm here to photograph. Um, so when we were in Yellowstone with our group, uh, we told them not to put their tripods even on uh, on the hot springs because it's just not a good idea to do that. Uh, you want to preserve that. Now, having said that, is it is it more nowadays? Uh, probably not, but it is covered. Mm -hmm. a lot more in the media today. Uh, I'll give you an example. There was a time when there was something called firefalls where um, people would um, take a whole lot of burning logs and toss them down a mountain in Yosemite um, just to see at night because it looked cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is not something that is good for environment. And that happened a number of years ago. And this uh, National Park Service stopped that practice, but you don't see that news coming out because at the time, the media coverage wasn't quite so intense as it is today. So are people doing stupid things in national parks? Yeah, they've been doing stupid things in national parks forever. It's just that you're getting a lot more news of it just because of the technology that is available. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with that. Anyway, uh, I think landscape nature photographers have a like a thin line to, to walk and find a balance between showing the nature's beauty, which helps in, in preservation, because people who are impressed by the beauty of nature, I think, are naturally tend to want to preserve that and making it popular. I mean, if it were not for... Uh, Photographers showing pictures of uh, Antelope Canyon. That would not be a popular place that now is uh, is always filled with tourists and so on. So we, we show something that nobody has, has seen before, like some places in Iceland. And five years ago, nobody would go there. And now, as you said, at some places, it's, it's a hundred or thousands of people going there. So it's, uh, it's always a, a difficult balance, to tricky balance to, to play there. What do you think? I totally agree. But on the other hand, there is popularity is a double-edged sword. 
um, on one hand, you creating popularity may cause some damage to the local area. On the other hand, popularity also helps to preserve a place. Yeah. Uh, for example, the popularity of uh, national parks, say like Olympic, it wasn't there. Um, logging companies would move in and try to exploit the area. Um, or Alaska National Parks, because a lot of land in Alaska is devoted to national parks. If it wasn't um, preserved and it wasn't popular enough where you can derive an income from the land through tourists, uh, there may be other um, interests that yeah, may absolutely. want to go and exploit the land that is there. So is it good to get popular? Well, not really from landscape photography, but yes, because it will bring in money that will help preserve the place. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And by showing those places that not many people get to see, you you make people realize what we'd be losing if we, yes, exactly. if we wasted, if we gave those places away to industrial mining uh, development, uh, logging, whatever. That's, yep. uh, that's very important, I think. So, yeah, thanks for for contributing to to sharing the uh, the knowledge of those places and the conscience of the the need for its preservation for their their preservation um going back to what you said at the beginning you mentioned visual wilderness which is your uh, your main website nowadays can you tell us a bit more about it uh, what's visual wilderness how does it work well, it's very simple. It's a website, and we have a very active blog. We have about 20 or so different contributors who contribute articles once every couple of months. We publish about three articles a week, um, and all our educational material is sold through Visual Wilderness. And twice a year, we run um, a big sales campaign called In Focus Deals. So um, if you want to know anything about landscape photography, it's a great resource. Um, all our blog articles are free. We have a newsletter that goes out um, three or four times a month, and uh, that gives you articles. Uh, recently, we started a Visual Wilderness magazine, and the only way you can get them is um, you can get them free if you subscribe to our newsletter. Um, otherwise, going forward, it may be um, older issues we may charge a nominal fee for. Um, because the website is getting very popular. Um, we have almost 50,000 visitors a month. Um, the traffic on the site now is becoming to a point where the costs are <laughs> getting getting to be a problem. So we are actually trying to look for ways to offset the cost. Yeah. But um, still, we have pretty much uh, all our blog articles are free. Our newsletter is free. Um, and we have some awesome uh, educational content on it. Yeah, if I may say so, I was uh, honored to be invited to contribute to, to Visual Wilderness, and I'm constantly in, in awe of the, the, the content that the other contributors are, are able to produce, which is miles above what I can do. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's a, it's a great resource. We will uh, put links in the, in the show notes for this episode for people who want to know more about uh, Visual Wilderness, but if you, for people who are just listening to the podcast, if you want to, to mention the, the website address or in general where people can find more about you online. 
Well, it's easy for me. You just type my name, Jay Patel, in any search engine, and I'll come up. Uh, or type visualwilderness.com, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you can go from there. The site is very well organized, and it's mobile-friendly. You can actually read all the articles on your phone, tablets, on your computers, any devices that you have. All right, so that's uh, visualwilderness.com. And uh, anything else you would like to add before we wrap this episode up? Or any plans for the future, what's coming up with you, or anything you would like to mention, just please do. Well, we have some new courses coming up. Um, Look for a composition course coming up very soon. Uh, We also have a course coming up, uh, Getting It Right in Camera. And our next In Focus Deals is going to be around Thanksgiving. Okay. Good. It was a great pleasure to have you here today. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope our listeners will uh, will get a lot out of it. Uh, We share some tips about uh, visiting Iceland and other pristine and wild locations that I think are very, very useful. And thanks for your, uh, your insights. Thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. You're very welcome. So goodbye. Take care.